Dr Martin Steinfeld. I'm a lecturer in EU law at the Faculty of Law. Thank you very much indeed, Martin Steinfeld, for talking to the Centre for Business Research post-Brexit podcast series today. We're at Peterhouse College University of Cambridge. You've just delivered your lecture on free movement of people. What do we know about the free movement of people in the European Union post-Brexit? We're in a new age now. Well, from a from a technical point of view, free movement of persons in the European Union post-Brexit from the perspective of two categories. EU nationals that reside, whether long-term or short-term, in the United Kingdom, and of course UK nationals in the remainder of the European Union will cease to be exercising any right to free movement. Um, they will no longer be EU citizens in the UK nationals case exercising that right. So from that perspective, the rights would then have to be transferred over to some kind of domestic law for EU nationals that remain within the United Kingdom. And that is the big question that is up for discussion. And from I've, I haven't had much chance to look at the white paper that's, that's come today, but from what I'm guessing, the specific details of that, and the, as an EU lawyer, the devil is always in the detail, will not be contained in this white paper and will possibly take for the form of secondary legislation. And then we've already spoken to Dr Kirsty Hughes. She firmly believes that EU nationals do have rights to stay here. There's international courts as well that people can appeal to. You're talking about falling back onto domestic uh, legislation too. But how do you see your way through these levels of legislature, both within the UK, within Europe, and internationally, wider too? It's going to be very complex. This is a multi-level complexity that the UK has never really faced. From the perspective, for instance, of constituency number one being the EU nationals, Dr Hughes quite rightly pointed out that there are all, there's all sorts of protection for an entitlement for EU nationals to reside in the United Kingdom. But that's only the first step. There have been extensive rights, many of which weren't really spoken about much in the referendum campaign, which EU citizens on have exercising their right to free movement have had for many, many years years. And that is a matter for huge discussion, at least on initially on a domestic level in terms of what pieces of legislation may or may not flow to replicate the rights that they already had. However, there is then also a supra or EU level set of negotiations that will have to take place. This is particularly important for the UK nationals, say the 300,000 UK nationals in southern Spain. There will then need to be a negotiation about this matter that will be taking place from the perspective of Commission and the Council, but then the various different member states might take different views in relation to that. It remains to be the case as to what, as you put it, international law might be applicable, but as a good example, is it conceivable that depending on how Brexit takes its shape, that at some stage in the future, let's just say it's a hard Brexit where there's no deal, there could be a claim that there has been a breach of the European Convention. Could we be finding, for instance, a whole series of cases ending up at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg? This is all up for discussion. We don't know yet. But what, what we do know is that there is an awful lot of negotiation that will take place beyond the simple right to reside and remain for both constituencies, both people, the EU nationals within the United Kingdom and UK nationals in the other member states. And it's all been built on case law over many years, you said, particularly for families and extended families yeah. too. 
That's absolutely right. So the baby, to a certain extent, is being thrown out with the bathwater here. Much secondary legislation, directives and regulations, has taken its shape and form partly because of a reaction by the member states to the emerging case law from the Court of Justice on free movement. This is something that has been evolutionary. It's taken very long time to evolve, and you, and you just simply cannot throw it out within two minutes. It, it is something that is as much part and parcel of, of free movement rights as a right to reside. For a good example of that, if you were, say, a US national, a right to reside in, uh, in itself, or a UK national going to, to the United States, a right to reside in and of itself might be of value. But under EU law for a very, very long time, let's just say you retire. Under, say, domestic immigration law, you might lose that right, you might be on a work visa that, that ceases. Under, um, under EU law, you've been entitled to export your, your pension benefits, entitlement for access to social security. And these are the kind of things that have been part and parcel of the case law that has built up over many, many years. You talked about free movement of people being a toxic issue in the 2016 referendum. We've moved on, we narrowly voted to Brexit, the European Union, but there was a playoff, wasn't there? And, and the playoff was the economy versus migration. And Theresa May now seems to have accepted and be interpreting the Brexit view, vote as a vote against free movement of labour and migration. Why did you use that word toxics? Well, it seemed as if the, in the build-up to the referendum and beyond, um, and it, this is a particularly important in terms of how the debate changed from access to the single market to hard Brexit within the media, that the idea that a, an EU citizen has a right to exercise free movement, some of whom may not be pure economic contributors because they get derived rights based on the citizenship directive of 2004, the idea that these individuals would be able to exercise this right unencumbered was something that was played in the press. Part of it related, erroneously in my view, to a conflation with asylum seekers, non-EU nationals, none of which actually technically have anything to do per se with free movement. So it became toxic even prior to that point, but it then became doubly toxic because of this notion that was suggested by Theresa May, amongst others in the Conservative Party, that you can come to the council or the commission and suggest, well, we just want access to the single market and we can extract free movement of persons from it. It then became a toxic discussion even within the European Union, the result of which has led to the situation we have today, where we are now talking, as Professor Deakin quite rightly pointed out, are we going to have something called an EEA light agreement, something that will at least make the particularism of the UK fit within a free trade agreement, so somewhere between CETA and the EEA, all because of this perception that free movement of persons itself was somewhat toxic. And WTO rules as well. They also carry with them responsibilities. They, they do have responsibilities, but WTO rules, to my knowledge, don't relate to free movement of persons. They, they relate to the movement of goods and to a certain extent of services, but not persons. Persons is beyond WTO rules. That's traditionally treated as a matter of domestic immigration law. And that brings me on to another thesis of yours, was that the EU evolved so far beyond free movement of goods, in a way it went too far and didn't carry people with it, particularly in the UK. As somebody that I, I should be quite overt and state is a Europhile, one of the problems that the European Union is facing right now, 
and I don't think has been reflected in the Commission Juncker's white paper on the future of Europe is to what extent is any kind of retrenchment possible? Because it, it appears as if the what's called traditionally the democratic deficit pod problem is alive and kicking in the sense that the EU citizens don't necessarily either perceive themselves as getting derived or benefited rights from the treaties and in particular haven't necessarily taken upon themselves the notion that say those within the liberal elite which I suppose I'd include myself as would say is a, a good thing in terms of progression towards further integration. The commission seems to be proposing further integration as a solution to the problem post-Brexit but what a number of protagonists might say is perhaps this is a time to reflect. Is it possible to come somewhere near to thinking about what the European Union was like back in its EEC days. To what extent is some kind of pause possible now? So pause. But if you take, for instance, something like the National Health Service and, and people having rights to access the NHS if they've got biomedical cards, which happens to people who are outside of the EU now. But we are going to have to think through how we're going to operate as a country which has global movement of people, regardless of whether it's free movement within Europe. Let me just deal with this in terms of my image of the White Cliffs of Dover versus admin. My image of the White Cliffs of Dover, I had the privilege of using Eurotunnel to drive to the continent last week. And the White Cliffs of Dover and Eurotunnel is literally not geared up for Brexit. It's not geared up. There have been all sorts of discussions about, at a most extreme level, could you bash down the White Cliffs? Or would there have to be some enormous lorry park just to deal with all the customs checks and formalities that would be needed if there was a true hard Brexit border? Well, similarly, in relation to the derived rights for EU nationals that remain on, the, on UK territory, are we talking about huge amounts more administration that would not necessary under EU law rights based on free movement? In order to now prove that you have an entitlement to use the NHS, are you going to have to be producing a card? All of this was just simply contained within the Citizenship's Rights Directive, and this will now have to take the form, I think, of a lot more administration. If anything, it's going to be pretty expensive. Let's have a look at that word cherry-picking. You use that a lot. But if we say the Brexit vote pandered to populism, that there'd be 350 billion more or for the NHS and we know that's not going to happen or it doesn't look like it's going to happen but we have got people feeling that we've got to prevent migration and free movement of people I mean can you unravel it can you go back and say well you know the Brexiteers got it wrong but we now need to do this we we need to to work with the EU to find the best terms on which we can Brexit you've got a schizophrenic situation here you've got at least a perception, if you include the 48%, plus, you know, it's really interesting that there was a piece on the BBC yesterday about perspectives on Brexit, and you even had a UKIP perspective, all suggesting that at this point, there is a perception that, that some kind of good neighbourliness should now evolve as a future relationship. A closeness will still be there, but it just won't be from within the European Union. What that shape is, is up for grabs, but you have an additional problem. And this might be sobering to hear it in this case. Fresh from my trip, I suppose, from the European Parliament, you've got a split perspective within the European Union and its member states. 
perspective. One, partly worried, for instance, the Polish government, partly worried about the impact it might have on their economies, would simply say that we need to have as smooth a transition as possible for the sake of everybody. Then there are protagonists, and this might be somewhat uncomfortable, but this is fresh from the European Parliament, within the EU's hierarchy in the member states, that actually would like the UK to crash and burn. They have bigger things on their mind than the UK, and that bigger thing is they are worried about the fragmentation and disintegration of the European Union. So the statement crash and burn was given to me last week. In other words, will there be an attempt by some to genuinely punish the United Kingdom in order to illustrate the fact that leaving the club is not a good idea? If the UK proves to be a success post-Brexit, that is exactly the opposite of what some might want, which means that, for instance, in the next two years, these negotiations are going to be very, very complicated. And the cynic in me thinks that it, unless there's some kind of 11th hour deal, that we may well be in a position where the UK has no agreement. And Professor Barnard has said on a number of occasions that that would be pretty much unthinkable to have had no transitional agreement at all. But she said today, entirely possible. It's now possible simply because of the, the way that the, the negotiations have already started to take some form of shape. Anything's possible in that respect. The default to the WTO rules, aside from discussions about most favoured nation status, for instance, essentially means nothing by comparison with access to the internal market. Now, if, as an example, just physically going to a border, there may well be, so from the 29th of March 2019, if there's no agreement whatsoever, then the UK, from the perspective of domestic immigration law, will just simply treat EU nationals as if they're making a visa application from any other state. And in that respect, there wouldn't be a huge impact. However, there would be a huge impact because of the queue at the border, which wasn't necessarily thought of because all of our airports are structured in such a way to filter EU citizens from from non-EU citizens and all the rest of it. So it's perfectly possible to conceptualise EU nationals into domestic immigration law. That will then result in the UK then being relatively weak. Let's just say we holidaymakers wanted to go to Spain. Well, at that point, you'd have to make a visa application. Most visa regimes are differential depending on the country. So it may well be that the default position for someone like Spain is to make you pay quite a lot for a visa. We heard from Brendan Sims, this story in this morning, that he thought Theresa May was right to talk about defence and security in relation to trade and Europe and Brexit. The Britain does pay more to the NATO budget for defence, and we have got a bargaining chip there, and historically that goes back a long way. But people also talk about the Henry VIII clause, that actually if you're looking back in time, we've got to go a long way back in time to find anything with the complexity of the situation that we face at the moment in Brexiting from the EU. I mean, can I just make a point since you brought up Henry VIII clauses? And I I hope my my colleague, Dr. Hughes, who, of course, was going to partly talk about the implication of of fundamental rights, would would agree with me here. We are now then in a position uh, of creating a structural situation that will go from having the supervisory jurisdiction of the Court of Justice to government ministers potentially legislating without even necessarily the proper purview of Parliament. Without Parliament, as as Professor David Howarth said. Exactly. And that's actually quite worrying, because to what extent should we be having a proper constitutional discussion about whether more Henry VIII clauses is the solution to the, the Great Repeal Bill problem? The problem with Henry VIII clauses is that it's almost impossible to, to, to easily determine the legislation if you're the ordinary Joe on the street, you have to go look them up. 
And then in addition to that, they can be changed. And the government can change it from day one to day two. And that change will ultimately lead to more and more legal challenges in yeah. the courtroom. And just finally, you did say that you thought there would be a, a long queue of litigants, miller-type litigants, mm. waiting to challenge decisions that are taken with the big Brexit reform bill. I would almost bank on there being more litigation, in the, depending on how the negotiations pan out. As an example, could there be an Article 8 right to private life claim, uh, private and family life to be specific, claim based on splitting up families potentially because of Brexit. Depending on how the rights of EU nationals is guaranteed, could you be having additional claims based on this time the Human Rights Act? The European Convention, of course, is implemented in UK law by the Human Rights Act. So would we be having further claims based on that? And all sorts of lawyers can be quite ingenious. So what other claims could we possibly be having? So, for instance, an additional element that failed was a challenge to leaving the EEA agreement at the same time. However, there are all sorts of rights and liabilities that will be impacted in the next two years. And depending on how this turns out, we probably would be facing more litigation. Every time rights and liabilities are detrimentally affected, that tends to result in litigation. So we might be having a conference like this every year for the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, the, the cynic in me has said this. Let's see if in 15 years' time I'm proven to be correct. So... There is absolutely no way, in my view, and I think most commentators would say, that it's po remotely possible to reach a fully-fledged replacement trade deal within two years. So then the question is, to what extent will this be between two and something else years? In other words, within the two years, a transitional arrangement has got to happen, but the long-term arrangement will need to be hammered out later. And in fact, a number of the member states have said that's the procedure they want. They want the UK to leave the European Union first before they even talk about it. Well, think about it like this which is why I personally felt that Nigel Farage's speech in the European Parliament in this context immediately after Brexit wasn't necessarily helpful. Think about it like this. With the CETA agreement, that took nine long years. And, or was it eight? One of the two, either eight or nine long years. And that was a, a relationship and between the Commission acting on behalf of the member states and the Canadian government, who were both on good terms, the Canada didn't have that stake. Now, in the conference today, it's been suggested, well, because we're so, we, we come from a position of being so deeply embedded in the single market, it, it, it might actually benefit us. But for instance, Sir Keir Starmer, when I, I went to Parliament last year and he speculated chair of the all-party parliamentary group on constitutional affairs, we would be talking about 10 years for a long-term agreement. Well, if we're talking about potentially contentious contentious discussions and negotiations over the next period of time, I speculated it could take as much as 15 years before some kind of agreement could be reached. I might be wrong. It could be that, that actually a long-term arrangement is, is reached within a matter of four years. Who knows? But given how long it took for CETA to be implemented, and given the really knotty conundrum of having every single, not just member state, but every single constituent element of a member state having to agree a final deal, we are talking something that somewhere within the member states, just by process of numbers, will prove to be contentious. And that could block a deal. For years. So you're kind of in agreement with the other lawyers in the room, whether it's Catherine Barnard or David Howarth or Simon Deacon, that the complexities of this Brexit process are overwhelming. The legislation and the papers that have been laid before Parliament, including the white paper today, don't appear to acknowledge that complexity. They're not fit for purpose. Not much has been said on devolution. So really, we're not prepared. 
We're not. I think that we were talking about this before. I was hearing on BBC Radio sort of a few months back a statement from someone. I can't believe that you know, Theresa May hasn't already invoked Article 50. We should just have done it on June the 24th and let them sort it out. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> it, this, this knotty mess is for us to sort out. And yes, there may be some other member states who are predisposed, Ireland being a very good example because they have a stake in this, to try and help smooth out this process. But ultimately, this extremely complex set of multiple negotiations from intellectual property to environmental protection, to competition law, to free movement rights, to social security rights, to even issues, for instance, Theresa May has mentioned this, she's just added this on, she still wants close cooperation on security. So what about Europol? What about the cooperation that's already been happening in on security and defence. This is all up for grabs. And, that, and, that, and then we haven't even included, Professor Barna was speculating this, that, that what, 90,000 pieces of legislation or something like that that would need to be looked at, thought through, potentially changed or not in the next 10 to 15 years. This is, this is very complicated stuff. Martin Stemphill, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today here at Peterhouse College, University of Cambridge looking at the post-Brexit situation in the United Kingdom and Europe. Thank you. Absolute pleasure.